All right. Well, joy is your compass. Jesus is your destination. Amen. Every single day, eh? All right. Um, let's say our declaration is uh, 3 John 2. It's Father God, I thank you that I prosper in all things and in health, even as my soul, mind, will, and emotions prospers. Amen, amen, amen. Well, having a teenager, like I do the best job I can uh, just keeping up with him, you know what I mean? Like just staying current, I should say, with him, uh, you know, with technology and everything. Like their vocabulary has changed so much over the years. I don't know if, you, if anybody has teenagers here, but, you know, talking to my son after I have a conversation with him, I probably walk away understanding maybe three quarters of the conversation, <laughs> you know, like I want to understand him and I'm comfortable now, like getting to a, I'm at a place now where I can just be like, what does that mean? You know, like he'll be talking to me, he'll say something, he'll be like, no cap, no cap, you know, and I was like, I know you ain't wearing a hat, but he's like, no cap, Bella, what, is, what does that mean? No, no lie. No lie, no cap. What in the world are you talking about, dude? Right? So no lie. So just tell me you ain't lying then. No cap. And so just recently, just in having these conversations with him and, 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 and the words that he uses and the words that I don't understand, um, it kind of caused me to start looking up some of these words. And did you know... In September, there was 690 new words added to the dictionary. I know, look at your faces, you guys, you are, you're me, you're me. So I didn't know that, I just thought I graduated in 1992, I just thought that was the dictionary. Those were all of the English words, <laughs> I didn't know. But they added 690 new words to the dictionary. So this was like so fascinating to me because it quickly went from, from me trying to just have a conversation with my son and understanding what he was saying, to me just being fascinated with these words that they added to the dictionary. And so I'm going to share a couple with you and see if they're just as fascinating to you as they were to me. The first word that I looked up that was added is, is riz. Riz. Yeah, R-I-Z-Z. Anybody, just, just a show of hands, you know, does anybody know what riz means? I knew you were going to know. <laughs> Dwayne, okay. All right. So riz, it's a noun, and it means romantic appeal or charm, right? Like he got all the riz with the girls. Yeah. It's game. We used to say game, right. But they, they took it from charisma, charisma. So it's riz. So second word is deep fake. Deep fake, it's a noun. Just a show of hand. Anybody know what deep fake is? Dwayne, you are you are on it today. <laughs> so, the meaning of deep fake, it's a noun. It says an image or recording that has been convincingly altered and manipulated to misrepresent someone as doing or saying something that was not actually done or said. Huh? Right, so it's, it's a social media thing. So, you know, it's like uh, a couple of artists and an advertisement company make an image of, I don't know, 
let's just say of, of Oprah, and, 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 and she says, you know, hey, I love Captain Crunch. Well, she, we know that Oprah don't eat Captain Crunch, you know, so this is like a deep fake. It's a lie that this image was actually Oprah when it's not. Like for me, I played football in high school, and so deep fake to me was like, all right, you go on out, you do a curl, you go all the way down, do a deep fake to the inside, and you go on out. Deep fake. So last word. Last word is bussin'. Bussin'. I got bussed to school. I was bussin' to school. So bussin' is an adjective. And it's funny, it actually says African-American English, bussin'. So bussin' means extremely good or excellent. And the first time that I heard bussin', it's funny, it's funny because the first time I heard bussin', it actually it says that it's an African-American English. The first time I heard bussin' was last Thanksgiving from my Caucasian nephews. They said, Uncle Marlon, man, this turkey is bussin'. I was like, I will bust you in your head if you keep talking about bussin'. Bussin'. So we, we have all of these new words and new meanings, and, and they're, you know, they're interesting to us because, you know, we, we've never heard them before, and they catch our attention. Um, so we really don't know what they mean. And so... I was just fascinated with that the past couple of weeks, and it had me thinking about some of the familiar words that we know of and the familiar definitions that we use casually. The words that we've heard so often, but we really don't pay that much attention to them, you know? And so I want to share one of those words with you today, and that word is grace. It's grace. And so the title of my message today is just The Greatness of God's Grace. The Greatness of God's Grace. And it's easy to, to just assume that we understand grace because it's one of those words that's just like tossed around in church circles. God's grace. And there's a lot of scripture committed to explaining grace. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he uses the word more than 100 times, close to 150 times to explain the concept to new, the, the first-generation Christians. And an explanation of grace is uh, found in Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. This is where Paul, this is how he explains grace. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And that's telling us that it's the blood of Jesus that gives us grace. It's, it's not what we did or what we're doing that earns it, right? It's not that any of our religious rule-keeping gives us his grace, that we deserve it. It is only the blood of Jesus. It's the price that nobody else could have ever paid where he took the punishment upon himself to set us free of our sins and grant us forgiveness. Amen? And, and that, that explanation is helpful. Right? That explanation is helpful. The theological definition of grace is the freely given unmerited favor and love of God. 
That's the theological definition. And both of those, the, the explanation and the definition, both of those are really, really helpful. But what I learned in this study was, was that if you really want to understand grace, you need more than a definition. You, you need more than, than an explanation. What you need is an experience. You need an experience. Like until you've experienced grace, it's, it's really hard to understand grace. But grace is like, is like love. It's like romantic love, right? Like I can open up a dictionary and give you the definition of love, and I suppose that, that might help you. But we could talk to scientists. Scientists could explain like the three chemicals in the brain that stimulates that happy feeling of being in love. Like they could tell you about the, the nor, what is it, uh, noradrenaline, is that, am I pronouncing that right? Noradrenaline, okay, and that's, that, that stimulates adrenaline, right? It causes that, like your heart to beat and sweaty palms. They could tell you about the dopamine, that feel-good chemical. You know, they could tell you about, and I hope I pronounced this right, is, is, is it phenylethylamine? Phenylethylamine. And that releases the, 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 the when you're near your crush, that, that releases those butterflies that you get in your stomach, right? And all that might be helpful about love, but to really, really understand love, well, you just fall in love. You fall in love with somebody. You don't understand it until you actually experience it. And I feel like the same is true with grace. When we try to explain grace to people, most of us will recite scriptures to people. And that's a, that's a good foundation. It's sometimes necessary. But I believe that most people, when you hear grace, I think what they're looking for is they're looking, for, they're looking for a story. They're looking for your experience about grace. Like that's how you, that's how you know that you know grace, right? Because you, you felt it. You've experienced it in your own life. When you look at the theme of grace throughout the Bible, what you'll find more often than not is that grace is something that, that's, that's taught to us. And it's taught to us through stories and narratives. Like in the Bible, we shouldn't just pay attention to, to what it says, but instead we should pay attention to how it's said, the context. Right? Like the genre matters. And the genre of, 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 of grace is actually story. That's the genre of grace. Where it doesn't necessarily like get explained, but but gets conveyed through one story after another. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. It said that Paul used the word grace more than 100 times in the New Testament. But if you, if you read through the gospel, you read through the gospels, you'll find that Jesus never uses the word grace. He never uses the word grace. But he taught us grace over and over and over again. John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth, and so it just spilled out on everybody around him. One story after another in the ministry and the life of Jesus teaches us about grace. And what happens is that when we read these stories, we want those stories. We want, it to, to, we want to be part of those stories, right? We want it to be our story as well. 
When Jesus begins his ministry, he calls the disciples to follow him, which is just a normal practice of a rabbi. They would, they would, they would call disciples. And what they do, the, the, the way that they did that, it was just an application process, right? So a rabbi would just accept applications, and they would go through all of these applications, and, and they would pick the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest, right? These were the people at the top. If you, if you had good credit and all of your references checked out, then you were able to, you were called to be a disciple of that rabbi. But here's what is interesting and what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't accept applications. He offers invitations. He offers invitations. And learning this was so huge for me, right, that he doesn't accept applications. He, he offers invitations. And what he does is he invites people that never would have made the cut anyway had they applied. Had they even filled out the application, they wouldn't have even made the cut. So he invites some fishermen, right? And in Matthew, Matthew tells us about Jesus coming to his tax collector's booth, right? And a tax collector in those days socially was a little lower than a prostitute, a tax collector. But Jesus comes to this tax collector and he says, follow me, be my disciple." And everybody might have thought that Jesus was, was being sarcastic when he went and asked him that or, or just being funny when he asked Matthew that, but he wasn't. He was, he was serious. He said, be my disciple. And see, in that story, we learn something about grace, that it doesn't matter what you've done. It don't matter where you're at right now. It don't matter what they say about you or what they think about you. You still get the invitation. You still get the invitation. See, grace, even though everybody else will give up on you, grace never gives up on you. Grace never gives up on you. Grace in a moment will rewrite your entire story. There's something about a story that captures that a a, a definition can't. A story will capture you. There's a story in the Bible found in Luke Five, where Jesus heals a leper. And in those days, if you were diagnosed with leprosy, that was just a life sentence of loneliness, right? A life of never being touched again. I'm no, no high fives, no, no hand slaps, no hugs, no, no pats on the back, nothing. You were unclean. As a matter of fact, if somebody was coming towards you, you actually had to say, unclean, unclean. Because if that person touched you, well, that person in turn would be made unclean. Yet here's what Luke tells us in in Luke 5, 12 through 13. It says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face down to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Did you see what Jesus did there? Before Jesus healed the man with leprosy, he reached out and touched him. He reached out and touched this man. And he didn't have to do that. This is Jesus. He could have stood at a a distance and healed him. 
Scripture tells us how Jesus cast out spirits with a word. He didn't have to go over there and touch him. There's something about grace that gets conveyed in this story. You see, the miracle is the healing. That reveals the power of Jesus. But the touch, well, that reveals the grace. That reveals the grace of Jesus. And that's my first point is that, is that grace, grace touches you. It touches you and then it heals you. Amen? Like Jesus didn't say you need to get all cleaned up first. And then when you're no longer afflicted, then, then I'll touch you. No, Jesus touches this man with leprosy right where he was. You see, the touch, the touch of grace says that, that I'm here. I'm, an, I'm, I'm here right where you are. That I'm sympathetic. I can feel, I feel your pain right where you are. That's where I'm going to meet you, right where you are. Church, we got to start reaching out and touching people and meeting them right where they are. Amen? we got to stop worrying about whether or not we're going to get divorce on us if we call them. Stop worrying about whether we're going to get depression on us if we call them. Or just because you ain't got nothing to say, you say nothing at all. There's so many people right now who just think that they got to have this nice, neat little package put together before they walk in the doors of the church. You know, like they got to get it all together. They got to get their life all straight before they come to church. They need to get all of these things out of their life before they come back to Jesus. I got to get this addiction under control before I come sit in a pew. I got to get my relationship right before I come back to Jesus. They got to get all these things together. But, but that's, that's not what grace does. That's not how grace works. Grace touches you and then it heals you. Right? You don't have to get clean. You don't have to get all washed up. I was drunk, depressed, and emotionally unstable when grace touched me. When it rescued me. When it healed me. I didn't have to have it all together. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. He didn't say, come to me, all you who are perfect and straight. You come as you are, and, and, and grace meets you right there where you are. We see this kind of grace again in, in Matthew eight fourteen through 15, and this is when, when Jesus visits Peter's house. And it says, now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his, his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her. He touched her hand. And the fever left her, and she rose and served him. See, Jesus was never worried about being infected by others. Even though the law stated that that you were prohibited to touch an unclean person, because if you touched an unclean person, like I said, you were made unclean. Jesus touched the man with leprosy. Jesus touched Peter's mother-in-law. Why? So that the, the, the cure would be spread. It's time that the church stops worrying about catching what the world has and start spreading what you got. Start spreading what you got. You see, the same healing, life-giving, resurrected power that rose Jesus from the grave is the same power that lives in you. Yeah. 
In him, you are the cure. It's time for us to start touching the world. Amen? I saw a post the other day that, that just said, be kind to unkind people. They need it the most. Isn't that the truth? And God's grace is abounding. It is abounding. There's more than enough to give away. We have a, a king-size bed, and it was just last year we were having a, a conversation with some of our friends, and um, for some reason after six years we had the conversation of who was hogging all the blankets at night. <laughs> and so um, I told her that, you know, I said, you know, I'm generous. You know, when I, when I make the bed, I purposefully add more blanket to your side of the bed. Right? What that does to me is when I get in bed, there's like, you know, it's it, the, the blanket is right on the edge of the bed. And so, like, there's a little draft that comes over under the sheet, under the blanket, and hits me when I get in bed. So I made it a point to tell her that. And she was like, that is so nice. I appreciate that you do that. You know, the problem is, though, when you get up and you go to the bathroom, when you come back, you take it back from me. But you don't just pull a little bit. You pull all of it. So it ain't just like a, the draft coming up. My whole left leg is out. And so the friends that we were talking to, they actually had a hack and to solve that problem. They said what they do is they, they actually have two full-size blankets that they use. And so now we have two full-size blankets that we use. The only problem now is we've got to figure out, like, the sheet problem. So we still got one sheet. We'll talk about that after church today. <laughs> but our, our original scripture, Ephesians 1.8, talks about the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. Right? And the word lavished is a descriptive word. It means to be in excess or to have enough to spare. It's, it's, it's abundance and overflow. In other words, God's grace is enough to forgive all of our sins and still have more to spare, right? God's grace is like this rich covering that, that he made to cover our whole lives, not just bits and pieces of it, right? He doesn't just give us just enough to reach the edge. We don't, we don't stand in his grace pulling it from one side to, to, to wrap ourselves and cover our mistakes, only to expose another weakness on another side, like a blanket that doesn't fit the bed. No, God's grace is lavish. It's surpassing. Amen? It extends past our sins, past our shame, falling around us in, un, in abundant folds. Right? There, there, there's, there's no shortage of his grace. And God's grace is given to us in this way so that we, the church, can reach out, touch others, cover them, and watch them be healed. Amen? Another Example of God's grace is in John chapter 8. And Jesus is, one morning, he's in the temple teaching, and a group of Pharisees come into the temple, and they're dragging this woman in, and they throw her at Jesus' feet. And her accusers say to Jesus, we caught this woman in adultery. In the act of adultery, we caught this woman. Now, the law says that, that we should stone her. What do you say? And there they stand with rocks in their hands, 
ready to stone this woman. But Jesus looks at her, and Jesus knows her. This is his daughter. Jesus knows her. And, and he looks at their accusers, at her accusers, and he says, if any of you is without sin, you cast the first stone. And somehow, they know that he knows. Right? They know that he knows. They know that he knows what they didn't think anyone else knew. And that ain't a good feeling. You ever walked into a room and, like, the new you walked into a room and ran into somebody who knew the old you? Oh. And you thinking, don't get to reminiscing in here. Don't start bringing up old stuff. This is the new me. Don't go blowing the spot up, Jesus. And so they start dropping their rocks one by one. Starting with the oldest cats, because they hadn't done, done some dirt in their days. They said, no, 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 I see this dude know what I did. They start dropping their rocks one by one until Jesus is left alone with this woman. And there's a very grace-filled moment that happens where Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I. Go and be without sin. Now, there's something in the story that shows us and teaches us something about grace that a definition never could. Right? When we hear that Jesus did this for her, there's something in us that says, well, if that's true for her, then that's got to be true for me. Then he can do that for me, right? And that's my second point, is that grace is greater than your secrets. Grace is greater than your secrets. Whatever your secret is, and we all got some secrets. We all got secrets. For this woman, her worst fear was that somebody would find out. Somebody would find out. So she keeps it a secret. And maybe that's, that's where some of us are today. We don't want nobody to find out. We don't want nobody to know. We don't want nobody to see. And so we keep it a secret. The problem with that is when we get so secretive, that we don't even trust the freely given grace of God, and we begin keeping secrets from ourselves. That's called deception. Some of us are good at deceiving other people, but when you start deceiving yourself, oh, Jesus. See, we don't trust the altar of grace, so we live in denial of our own lust. We live in denial of our own pride, of our own greed, of our own selfishness, and we keep it a secret from ourselves. We keep it a secret from ourselves when we compare ourselves to other people, right? It's not that we, we claim to be perfect or anything, but, but when we compare ourselves to other people, well, what we did don't seem so bad, right? When we start comparing ourselves to other people, what we did don't seem so bad. When you start judging, when we judge ourselves, we give ourselves a pretty big curve, Right? I mean, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but I don't fall as much as you. 
That's, come on, let's be real. That's what we want to say. That's what we, we want to twist scripture. I don't fall as much as you, homie. That's for you, but, but, but it, may not, it may not apply to me. We keep it a secret from ourselves, and, and we, give our, we give our sin a hall pass by comparing ourselves to other people. But, but you know what you're doing when you're comparing yourselves to other people and feeling more superior than them? You're sinning. You're sinning. Because from where God sits, our pride and our self-righteousness are uglier than the sins of the person that you're comparing yourself to. He hates six things. No, seven. Sin is top of the list. Or pride, I'm sorry, is top of the list. And so we live in these deceptive places. We don't want nobody to know and, and we don't want them to find out. And so we just choose to live in sin. And we work hard. We work hard at convincing ourselves and other people that we ain't that bad. But the more that you deceive, we deceive ourselves, we push back on that lie, the more we push back on our experience in grace, the grace of God. If we miss the reality and the depth of our sin, we miss out on the grace of God. It is all related. All of it is related. Our ability to appreciate grace is directly related to the degree that we acknowledge our need for it, our need for grace. That just means the more we recognize the ugliness of our sin, the more we appreciate the beauty of God's grace. And it don't matter who you are, whether you, you make, you got a six-figure salary, you live in a five-bedroom house, and you take three vacations a year, or if you're homeless, eating out of a garbage can, you both are still in need of the same grace that's only provided through Jesus Christ. We live in sin because we think the worst thing that could happen is that our secret gets found out. But here's the beautiful truth, church. Here's the beautiful truth that you'll find out, is when your secret is told, make sure it's told at the feet of Jesus, right? Because it's there that you'll be met with the loving grace of God. But you don't know it. You don't know it until, until you bring, it's brought from the darkness, until it's brought from the darkness into the light. And that means that you may have to bring your secret, drag it, kicking and screaming, into the light. Because it doesn't want to be exposed. But when it is exposed, we see this beautiful truth that his grace is greater than your secret. Amen? And know this. That there's, there's, not one, there's, there's not one single thing that you've ever done or a combination of things that you've done compounded that the grace of God ain't sufficient to cover and grant you forgiveness. The blood still works today. The blood still works today. Amen? And, and I believe that that's the, the, the great message and the story of the gospel, is that the blood of Jesus, God's son, can save a wretch like me. That he can wash me white as snow. Now, the devil wants you to believe that, that, that you're beyond the grace of God. But the Bible tells us that he's the accuser of the brethren. 
And he often accuses us to ourselves, causing us to question whether God's grace is sufficient. But I stand here completely confident that the all-sufficiency of the grace of God covers us and cleanses us. Amen? God's grace is unusual, y'all. I think they wrote a song about it, said it was amazing. (laughs) It's unusual. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through one action, faith. Faith. So when you put all of your faith in Jesus, what happens is his grace just gets extended to you. And this is true throughout Jesus' life. He never uses the word grace, but he consistently teaches us about grace, even to the point where he's nailed on a cross. And there he is nailed on a cross, and all of heaven is watching. They're watching the whole thing unfold. And they're just waiting for Jesus to say the word. Because Jesus told Peter in the garden, he said, don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect me, and he would send them instantly. And so they're they're just waiting for it. Jesus, you just say the word. You say the word, and we're right there. And there he is hanging on the cross. And he prepares to say something to all of heaven. Get silent. And Jesus says, Father, forgive him. Forgive him. And once again, Jesus teaches us about grace. So when someone asks us about God's grace, I believe what they're asking for is a story. They're asking for your story. Right? About how God's grace has been great in your life. That's what they're asking for, about how he's delivered me from anger, depression, manipulative behavior, and abuse. About about how he's broken chains of poverty and generational curses and racism. How he's rescued me from addiction, brokenness, and bondage. And how he saved me from sin, darkness, and death. But I'm just one man. That's my story. You got a story? Do you have a story about God's grace? Stand up with me, church, and let's close. That's the question. Are you sharing your testimony of God's grace? Your story about the greatness of God in your life. Too often we think that God only, he's only interested in the good people, right? You know, the ones, the ones that got it all together, the ones that, that never make any mistakes, the ones that never give in to temptation. Listen, church, those people don't exist. You working to be better than somebody that you've created in your imagination. Grace is, is, is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness and favor of God. That's what it is. That none of us deserve. But he gives it freely. There's, there's nothing that you did 
and nothing that, that you will ever do that will cause God to display his grace. He just doesn't. It's freely given. We think it's our performance and we try to be good enough and think that that's how we get God's grace. When the truth is this, it doesn't, when you mess up, God doesn't turn away from you. He turns towards you. His, his grace is always looking for you. His love is always coming after you. And he loves all of us just the same. As a matter of fact, he will leave 99 just to come looking for you. You can be high, drunk on a street corner, and his grace is looking for you. You can be doing all the wrong things in all the wrong places. His grace is still looking for you. You can be a low-down, dirty, good-for-nothing. Depressed, discouraged, ready to give up on life. The good news is that God's grace is always looking for you. It's looking for you right now. God ain't keeping record of your past mistakes. That's us. We do that to ourselves. He ain't even interested in your past. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you've been. God's grace is sufficient for you. His grace wants to meet you where you are today. It wants to touch you and wants to guide you into his purpose and his plan for his glory. That's the greatness of God. Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Father, for your goodness and your kindness, Lord. That's so rich, Jesus, that you purchased us. You purchased us, Father, with the blood of your Son. We thank you, Father, for showering us with your wisdom and understanding, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that when nobody else was there, you were willing. You were willing to meet us where we are, touch us and heal us. Help us drag our secrets out into the light, Father, out of the darkness, into the light, and place them at your feet. We're so grateful for your grace. Thank you for meeting us where we are, Father. Open our eyes, Father. Open the eyes to our hearts so we can see you this week, Lord. We trust you with all of our hearts. We walk up the mountain today with our arms wide open. Leaving it all at the altar, God. We thank you for the greatness of your grace. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. If you need prayer, we're going to have some of our uh, pastors and altar ministers come up here today. Remember to, to look for, for God this week. 
He wants to touch you where you are, church. Don't think you got to get it all cleaned up. Thank you guys for being here. We'll see you next week. Remember to live right, love everybody, and pray hard.